If you want to follow me in your Bible, reading from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we are also, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, this morning, we just praise you for this time of year where we celebrate our nation, but also we celebrate and praise you for the gift of our nation, for the gift of people who led us to be godly people, to be a godly nation. But Father, I'm afraid we're running away from you now. And Father, we ask you, I ask you, Father, this morning, just to bring us back as a nation. Bond us together in a love for you and a love for what you've created in our country, a nation where we can love each other, hold each other, and protect each other. But Father, also pray for the families of lost loved ones, just battling for this nation's freedom, Father. I pray especially for them this morning. But Father, we ask you to hold us together as a nation, lift us up, heal us. But Father, I also pray for our pastor this morning as he leads us in worship, as he leads us through the scripture. Hold him true to the scripture, Father, but let his words be your words, Father, and just give him the comfort and the blessing of life of being able to present your word accurately. And Father, be loyal to the word. And Father, we just praise you for your word. We praise you for the scripture and all just what it means to our life. And we praise you for the lives that are here today, Father, worshiping you and lifting you up. And Father, again, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of our nation. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. As you have already read and followed along in your copy of the Word of God, go ahead and be turning to the book of Titus, chapter 3. And while you're turning there, you may not be aware that there is a, a new seminary in Arkansas. It's located in Conway. It's ran out of Grace Bible Church there in Conway under the leadership of Jeff Johnson. It is a wonderful seminary. It's one that I commend to anybody who wants to go. Uh, wonderful church that it's ran out of. And one of their theology professors wrote a, a, uh, a social media post yesterday that I thought was very appropriate. It's not very often that I'll read a social media approach from the post from the pulpit, but this one was one that I resonated with, and I feel that you will too. It says, young Christian, if you've been told that loving Christ and being thankful for your country can't coexist, you've been misled. Loving your country is a form of neighbor love. 
Many American Christians know that the U.S. is far from perfect and isn't our true home, yet we love it. The current trend of enjoying all the benefits of America, but endlessly dumping on it is neither gracious nor logical. Don't fall prey to such ungrateful behavior. Be thankful to God for the common grace shown to this nation. Be thankful for the many blessings we enjoy here. God is glorified in our gratitude for every blessing we have from salvation all the way to the smallest kindness. Live in gratitude, not in misery. And I thought that was very appropriate today because there is, it is kind of fashionable today, especially among young Christians, to, to speak ill of our country. Of course, a lot of that is coming from the CRT left that we've been talking about, the critical race theory and all that stuff, bringing up and dredging up the sins of past over and over and over again. But it's not only coming from the left, it's also coming from the right, uh, these who, who give all these conspiracy theories and such, li- such like that and, and just bad-mouthing our nation and making just a, uh, a total name for themselves almost by, by discontent and disharmony and, and all of these things. Beloved, the Bible teaches us that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, yes, but we are also citizens of the United States of America. We are citizens of two places. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and of an earthly kingdom, a heavenly nation and an earthly nation. We are citizens of the United States, and there's a lot of confusion from a lot of Christians how we are to live as citizens of two countries. Now, we all know that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We all know that, this, that the United States is not permanent. One day, it will leave this earth. And in the meantime, we will be thankful for it. We know all the kingdoms of men ultimately rise and fall and they come as the vapor of the air. We understand that. And yet the Bible teaches us that we are to be both good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we are also to be good, good citizens of whatever country it is that God has placed us in. And God has placed us here. I hope you believe that. God is sovereign over all of the boundaries of kingdoms of men. God is sovereign over, over everything, everywhere we live. You didn't have a whole lot of choice of who your family that you were born into, what country you were born into, all of those things. I know, I know sometimes you wish you had kind of a choice of which siblings you got and which ones you didn't. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is we didn't get a whole lot of say in that. And the reason why is because it is a means and a way that you and I can practice perfect trust and perfect obedience to God wherever it is that we've been planted and in whatever time that we've been planted in. Beloved, one thing we have to recognize is that we don't live in 1950s United States. We don't live in the 1800s United States. We live in the United States of America in the year of our Lord, 2021. It's 2021, right? Yeah. So... (laughs) 2020 was a blur. I'm, 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 like, I'm like years off now. But anyway, so we're commanded to be citizens of both kingdoms. And there is a danger of being so, so heavenly minded that you're not a good citizen of where you are. There is that danger. Of course, I don't think you're truly heavenly minded if you're that way. But there's also a danger of interpreting everything first and foremost as an American and not as a Christian. 
Beloved, there, there are certain things that as, as Americans we have freedom for, but we don't necessarily have that freedom in Christ to do. And we want to, everything may be lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And we always want to make sure that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but not ignoring the fact that we are also citizens of the United States. There's a clear train of biblical thought all the way through the scriptures. And I don't have a PowerPoint this morning, but I do want to just show you a couple of verses. Um, Not all of them are on the board, so you might wanna write them down. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. It is the calling of Abraham or the calling of Abram at that point. And you may remember that he's giving him all of these promises, some, some seven or eight promises, I believe it is. I think it's seven, but I haven't counted in a while. But he says in verse two specifically, he says, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. One of the reasons why God called Abram is so that he will be a blessing to those around him. And we see right here in Genesis chapter 12, when he goes down into Egypt due to a lack of faith, his lack of faith caused Egypt to be cursed. His, the whole point of why God chose Abram and blessed Abram is so that he will be a blessing to those around him. Look in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses five through seven. Jeremiah is telling the people what they are to do when they're in Babylon in exile. And he's telling them to take wives, build homes, work hard, have sons and have daughters. And specifically in verse seven, he says that you are to pray for the welfare of the city and work toward the welfare of the city that you are in. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare also. Beloved, we are to pray for our country. We are to pray for the people of where we are. We're to pray for peace, pray for justice, pray for those kinds of things. Because in their welfare, we will find ours also. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 says this. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Beloved, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people at all. Sometimes our efforts to take back the culture, uh, those who are in our mission field, we we tend to turn the, the very ones that we're called to reach, we tend to turn them into our enemies. Sometimes we're so concerned about fighting the cause that we forget to minister to the person, the one who's caught up in the sin, the one who is trapped in the sin. And that's why Paul's words to Titus here are so uh, adequate and so uh, helpful in this time that we're living in because Paul specifically left uh, Titus in Crete because Crete was an island that was known for its bad reputation, that was known for its political controversies, that was known for its moral decay, that was known for all of these things. And Paul specifically put Titus there for that reason reason. You know, none of this, oh, I, I want to live somewhere because there, there's, no, there's nothing but Christians there. So that way we can live comfortable and at peace. Beloved, what you're looking for is heaven. That's not going to happen down here. 
That's not gonna happen in this life. It's our hope, yes, to be sure. But right now, we are on mission. We are not glorified. And therefore, we are here to be in the mission. And Paul's instruction to Titus is very significant here. In verse one, he says, remind them to be subject to their rulers, to authorities, to be obedient and be ready for every good deed. Malign no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. How do we become good citizens in an earthly kingdom? We just saw it. Even in the middle of the moral decay of Crete, even in the middle of all the disgusting practices that Crete did, even in all of that, Paul is giving these instructions that you're to be subject to rulers and authorities, obedient and ready for every good deed, malign no one, live at peace, gentle, and show all consideration for every man. Not just the ones who agree with us, by the way, but every man and woman, we might add in there. Fact of the matter is, is that in the, in the day that Paul wrote these letters, New Testament churches were small islands in a sea of paganism. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are that today. We've always been that. We've always been that. There's no such thing as the Bible Belt. It's a myth. Churches are always small islands in the mist, in the sea of paganism. And some of that paganism may take on Christian names, but it has nothing to do with the New Testament. And so we need to understand the truth is, is that we, have, we do have a unique blessing in America to live in such a nation that began with such a strong Christian influence. And yet as we are watching that influence wane away, as we are watching that influence decay, there's a temptation to get mad at the culture, to get mad at sinners, to get angry, to get even with guys who, who, uh, who drive their car and push down Ten Commandment monuments and, and things like that. Beloved, don't get mad at sinners for being sinners. That's what they do. That's what we expect. Don't get mad at sinners for sinning. Have a heart for them. Instead, Paul says that we're to show perfect courtesy to all and speak evil of no one. And that is our call to live in this great nation, to be a good and productive citizen. This morning in our Sunday school class, we were talking about how to develop a Protestant work ethic, that the number one way that you can be a good witness at your work is to be the best employee that you can be, that he has, that your boss has, to be the, the best employee, to be the most dependable employee, to be the most productive employee. Not reading your Bible and praying on the boss's dime. Although if your job affords you to do that, by all means, do so. But to be the best employee you can be, that's how we witness. Our call in the United States is to be a good, productive citizen. And how can we do that, especially in light of so many things that are going on now that we look at and we simply cannot get on board with? So many things that are coming out of our government, so many things that are happening right here in the city that are things that you would have never imagined even, even 10 years ago, you might not have imagined. And yet now they're happening in broad daylight, calling evil, evil good and good evil. How do we live in a culture like that and be a good productive citizen? Well, Paul gives us some things to remember 
in this text, beginning in verse three. He says that in order for you to do this, in order for you to be a good, productive citizen, to be courteous to all, to speak evil of no one, is number one, by remembering who you were. Remembering who you were. Look at verse three. He said, for we also were once foolish ourselves. We once also were foolish ourselves. And I want you to notice that he uses a number of things to describe what this foolishness entailed. He said, number one, he, sa- he says we refused to walk with God. These are very descriptive terms. He said that we were foolish ourselves. How? By being disobedient, being deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. By the way, I don't think that that verse is just randomly putting a list together. I think that there is a pattern here that we see that we at first begin by simply being disobedient and then through our disobedience, we become deceived and we begin to be enslaved by our lust and passions, which, which causes us to live in envy of others and begin to commit malice against them because they have the things that we want and their life is quote unquote so much better than ours is and that of course leads to outright hatred of them and being hateful. They were disobedient, disobedient to truth, walking in the rebellion of the Lord. We walked with the world. We were led astray. We refused to know the truth of God. We were led astray by the world. We were slaves, enslaved to our various lusts and passions. John 8, 34 says that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Beloved, we're not talking about those who are out there. This is who we were. This is who you are if you don't know Christ. This is every single one of us. We were enslaved to the lust of our passions and our pride, deceived and deceiving, hateful and hating, all of this. Envy, jealousy toward the things that other people have. We see Exodus chapter 23, verse nine. God tells his people, he says, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourself know the feelings of a stranger for you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. Now it's it's worded so that you know the heart of a sojourner. You know what it's like not to live in your own country. You know what it's like to be a slave, to be cut off from your home. And the same logic applies here that you know what it's like to have been a slave to sin. So how can we look upon sinners with anything other than the deepest compassion, knowing that were it not for the grace of God, we would be in the same place? Were it not for the grace of God, we would still be enslaved to our sin and who knows what? Either lost to our pride or lost to despair. Making it on our own or falling into the cracks of society. Do we not still feel the pull of our favorite sins? Do we not still feel the temptations of those things that we once loved? 
Do we not still feel the temptation of those things calling us, beloved, under the right circumstances apart from God? There is no sin, no matter how great, no matter how heinous, there is no sin that given the right circumstances that Randy Scott would not commit. And I am only here by the grace of our God, the mercy of our God. And the only reason you're here is by the grace and the mercy of our God. And how can we look upon anyone else with pride and arrogance as if everything we have, we have done in Christ ourselves? How can we, how can we do that? It's because we forget where we came from. It's because we don't understand the doctrine of sin. I commend to you the great book by John Edwards. Uh, John Edwards, uh, I commend anything he writes, but John Owen, the, sin, the Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. It's an amazing book that just teaches us how the depths of depravity, of rebellious, of our rebellion against God and all the various ways that it shows up in our lives, either through pride or through outright rebellion. Our understanding of our need of grace is directly related to how we treat one another. Luke chapter 18, verse one says that those, he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves for righteousness and treated others with contempt. Those two are always side by side. That if we treat others with contempt, it is because at least in that area of our lives, we are self-righteous. And so those two are always connected. If we can pull ourselves up, why can't they? If we can get our act together, why can't they? But beloved, when we remember our desperate and daily need of grace, how far our rebellion takes us, we're not our sanctification in the spirit when we remember what a needy people that we truly are, something happens. We become compassionate. We can't help but to. And we begin to look at people not as our enemy, but those who are sinking in a sea of wickedness, desperately needing a life raft. And we have the raft. We have the cross that we can give them. So beloved, remember who you were. But speaking of daily grace, we also remember what God did. We also remember what God did. Look, look on in uh, verses four through six. He says, but when the kindness of, our, of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. He begins this, this profound section by saying that, but when the kindness of our God, our savior, and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. You see, when God appeared on the earth, when Jesus Christ came, he came not to condemn the world, but he came in order that he may redeem the world. He came that he may save the world. And we remember that we are the recipients of that wonderful kindness, of that wonderful mercy of God. We remember what God did for us. 
and everything else that Paul describes here. This is an amazing section of scripture, a profound section of scripture that has such deep and rich and pregnant significance of truth in our lives. Everything he describes here was all that was involved in the act of saving us. He says in verse four and five, for example, that it was through the Father's own love for us. I want you to notice that there was no hesitation on God's part. There was no second thoughts. His love is expressed through the goodness and the loving kindness of that mercy that appeared toward us. God took the initiative for us We love because he first loved us. He's not responding to our love for him. He's not responding to our works for him. He saved us out of nothing but only and solely his wonderful, uh, matchless grace being poured out on us. There was no value that he saw within us. There was no goodness in our heart. There was nothing that we could do. There was no righteousness that we could stir up out of our own nature. We were lost sinners destined for hell and Christ poured out, the Father poured out his mercy on us. Praise the Lord. And so his love and his kindness, it was expressed through his love, not by any works of ours, not through any righteousness, but instead it is solely and absolutely and only a result of his perfect mercy expressed to us. He saved us. That's the father. But look at the work of the spirit in verse five. He saved us according to his mercy by what? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We're about to start a series on the Holy Spirit, his person and work. But I want you to just see here, I don't wanna give away the farm here, but he says here that he takes away the old. He washes us, uh, washes our sins away through this regeneration. He makes us new. He makes us a new creation. He has and is renewing us to new life in Jesus Christ through the process of sanctification that he commands us to do by putting off the old, putting on the new and being renewed in the spirit of our minds. He is washing us. He is making us fit for heaven. Do you realize that an unsanctified sinner could no more enjoy heaven than they enjoy church? You realize that? I don't enjoy church. Well, you're not gonna enjoy heaven much either because heaven's all about Jesus perfectly. You know, church is all about Jesus imperfectly. You know, we're, there's always mixture of motives. There's always mixture of faith and doubt and all that. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Heaven is gonna be perfectly all about Jesus. And beloved, if you don't like a church that's all about Jesus, you're gonna have a very hard time in heaven. Very hard time. In fact, I dare say, if you're not all about Jesus, you might want to make sure you're going to heaven. You might want to make sure that you have been made fit for the kingdom. That is the work of the spirit. That is not something we do on our own. The father loved us and poured out his mercy on us. The spirit takes that mercy and he applies it to our lives through the washing of regeneration, making us new and baptizing us in himself. We see the work of the father. We see the work of the spirit. We also see the work of the son in verse six. 
through whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see the Father's love, we see the washing of the Spirit, and we see the work of the Son. God provided all of this, all of it through the message and ministry and work of Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly before God, absolutely sinless from the time he was born until the time he died. He, he earned that perfect righteousness that you and I need. He loved God completely. He loved others selflessly. And then he died on the cross, not for any sin of his, for he had none, but he died on the cross for me and you so that we can come before God our Father in heaven. He died so that the promise of God could be ours. Why does Paul bring up the work of the Trinity here? Who saved us? God the Father? Yes. God the Son? Yes. God the Spirit? Yes. And if any one of those is left out, then you have to work your way and earn your way to salvation somehow. Guess how far you're gonna get? Not very far. But why bring up the Trinity here in a passage about treating others with perfect courtesy and peaceable and all of that? Beloved, look at John 17, 22. Why do we remember our Trinitarian salvations? Because of this. Because Jesus prayed that the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, watch this, so that they may be one just as we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are one. Beloved, do you realize that the Trinity is the model for all human relationships? The Trinity is the model, that perfect relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the model that we follow in the power of Christ. So when you are tempted to say something to someone or when you are tempted to act a certain way towards someone, when you are tempted to do something to someone, maybe we should ask ourselves, is this something that the father would say to the son? Is, this, is what I'm about to say to my neighbor, is what I'm about to say to my brother or sister, is what I'm about to do out there in the culture, is this something that the father would say to the son or that the son would do to the spirit? And if it's not, then maybe you should think twice. Because the Trinity is the model of all of our affections, all of our relationships. The salvation we have in Christ is the foundation, the motivation, and the model of how we treat others. Jesus said, you are to love one another. How? As I have loved you. I told this story before. I was, I was teaching my youth group on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I had a parent complain that uh, her, her, she stopped allowing her kid to come to youth. And so... I dutifully uh, went to talk to her and uh, her mom. We had a meeting between her and the pastor and me, and thankfully I had a pastor who, who understood some of the issues involved. But she said, Randy, you're teaching our kids about all this theology, about Jesus and about justification. And, and all. our kids, my kids don't need to know that stuff. That's for, that's for you seminary eggheads. That's not for normal people. 
And I said, well, just out of curiosity, what do you want me to teach your kids? And she said, well, they need to know how to be good friends to one another. They need to know how to be, have a good relationship. I said, okay. And I turned her to the words of Jesus, that you shall love one another as I have loved you. How are we gonna know how to love each other if we do not understand how Christ has loved us first? You don't think this stuff is practical? It's very practical. It's very practical. In fact, we see a trend in every church and every denomination that they begin to follow pragmatism. They begin to go after whatever works, programs and such. And then they begin to sacrifice doctrine because let's face it, doctrine is not very practical. So they begin to sacrifice doctrine and then they begin to get into moralism, which always leads to moral rot. And we see that in so many churches. We've seen that in just about all the denominations. Beloved, we must remember what God has done for us if we are going to know how to be good citizens in the United States, amen? Make no mistake, it will always lead to moral rot eventually if we sacrifice the teaching of scripture to the altar of pragmatism. Always does, no exceptions. So God empowers us to follow him. His love for us entices us to follow him. His life and ministry is the example for us to follow him. And so we remember who we were. We remember what God did for us. And finally, in verse seven, we remember whose we are. Verse seven, he says that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by his grace. And this is a word that should be very close to the heart of every single Christian who lives. It is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Justified means that God declares us righteous. He doesn't just simply say as if we've never sinned. That just makes us on kind of a blank slate. No, God declares us just as righteous as Christ himself is because he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it to our account. We are not righteous before him, but he declares us to be so. And we just looked at that very, very, very closely in the book of Galatians. We're declared to be righteous in Christ. It is the basis of our forgiveness of sin. It is the hope of our relationship with Christ. It is a summary of all that Christ has done for us. We need to remember that the source of our righteousness, the source of our relationship with God is not in ourselves, but it is in Christ alone. Because the moment we start trusting in ourselves for righteousness, the moment we become self-righteous is the moment that we become self-centered. So we have to remember this. It's not according to the law. It is according to grace. We are in Christ and our salvation is in him. And because of that, we are heirs according to hope. Hope of what? Eternal life. Beloved, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not a political party. Our hope is not any law that could be passed. 
Our hope is not political activism. Our hope is not social justice. Our hope and our salvation is not in anything in this world. And yes, we mourn over the sin of this age, but we do not despair because our hope is in the the sure foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord and the fact that we are heirs according to his promise and that is a promise you can take to the bank. That is a promise that we have that will last. Yes, I am concerned about the nation my children will grow up in. I am concerned about the nation my grandchildren will one day have. But beloved, I'm not without hope because my hope is not in this nation. I love being an American, but my hope is not in America. I love having freedom, but my hope is not in freedom. My hope is not set on anything in this world, but in the things to come. And it does not matter who becomes president, what laws are passed, or whatever happened, none of it changes my hope, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, he is on the throne, and he is the one who has given my hope to me. And there is no government or person in the world that can take that away. Do what you want. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Do whatever you want. Do your worst. We are citizens of two kingdoms, beloved. One by birth, one by grace. One a democratic republic, one a divine monarchy. One is temporary, the other is eternal. And beloved, we have a faith that overcomes all the ills of this world. We have love in our hearts that does not depend on the actions of this world. And we have a hope that transcends this world. And that's what we need to focus on. I never will forget, years ago, I believe it was uh, 2008, California. They passed Proposition 8. Do you remember that? Thousands of man hours, millions of dollars went in to Proposition 8, which was the proposition before California voters to define marriage as one man and one woman. And all the churches got behind this and they spent countless man hours and millions of dollars over the span of about two years, I think it was, they worked tirelessly on these efforts. And if you recall, it passed. The voters of California voted on it. And everybody was so celebrating until one signature by one judge did it all away. That's all it took. And all those millions of dollars and all those thousands of man hours wasted, put to nothing by one signature by one judge. I wonder if all those man hours and all those millions of dollars had been spent preaching the gospel instead of passing a law, what good could have been done? We'll never know. But beloved, our hope is not in a law. Our hope is not in a party. Our hope is not in a country. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. I love America. I do. But my hope is not in America. And I would ask you this morning, where is your hope? 
Where is your peace? Where is your hope for the future? What is your hope for righteousness? Is it in the political party you belong to? Is it in the way you voted last election? Is it in any of those things or is it in Christ alone and the work that he did on your behalf? Love, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, understand whatever hope you are substituting Christ with is not going to help you. You're gonna be sorely disappointed. And so let's live in the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's focus on him and his kingdom. And let's be good citizens in the kingdom of man, wherever we are. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your love and grace. Lord, we are thankful for our country. We are thankful that we have been here this morning for hours on end. And yet not once have we feared of any kind of government reproof or any kind of government assault. Lord, we have worshiped here in peace. We've worshiped here in harmony. But we know even right now, there are churches in our country that are not doing that. We know there are churches right now that have met in defiance of their state governments. They have chosen to obey God rather than men. We know our our neighbor to the north, some three or four pastors have now spent time in jail in order to worship you and to obey you rather than men. And Lord, while it is a freedom we enjoy, it is not a freedom we hope in. I pray that every single person in this room has placed their hope in Christ alone. And if that is not the case, Lord, I pray that today would be the day you draw them to yourself so that they may know you. I wanna ask you to stand. We haven't done this in a while. We're going to begin our weekly altar calls. I'm just gonna ask you to bow your head and just reflect on the truths that you've heard today. And if for any reason you need prayer, for any reason you want to come forward, perhaps to give your life to Christ, perhaps to become a member of this church, perhaps uh, just to ask for prayer, perhaps whatever need you may have, I would invite you to come this morning. And I'd love to pray with you. Let's just reflect for just a little while as our, as our instrumentalists play.